You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Here we are, episode 37 of the Doolanders. Uh, I don't know about you, mate, but I am feeling a little sluggish today. Why? Well, we've just wrapped up that Easter long weekend. Mm. I think on last count, I'd I'd smashed down about six chocolate hot cross buns. And this is no word of a lie. Like those small, little, hard, full chocolate eggs. Mm. I reckon there was 60 of those that went down the gob. Wow. I was thinking you looked a bit... More egg shaped. <laughs> I feel it. Like, it, isn't it crazy? I generally, I'm pretty disciplined with what I do and what I eat, and just mooching around like some sort of slug at the moment. Well, in good news for you, Blake, episode 37, mm-hmm. who have we got on? Ah, we have Jeremy Battle. And what does Jeremy do? Jeremy is a. He's the director of high performance for the Mighty Ducks. The Mighty Ducks. The Anaheim Ducks, uh, the NHL uh, over in the States. Did you ever see that movie, The Mighty Ducks? The documentary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think Jez uh, talks about it being a documentary. Yeah, he does. And look, this this is an episode for anyone that thinks they're a Masters athlete. And that could be the person who, you know, you hit up a local gym um, or maybe you're still playing a, a weekend sport um, and you're 35 plus, that kind of thing, because not only has Jeremy had an incredible journey yeah. to getting to, to being at the top of his game, it's not yeah. only NHL, but it's NBA and a bunch of other sports all around the world. Mm. Um, he's done something that he and, and his colleagues describe in industry as weaponizing the human body. Yeah. And we get some insight into how we can weaponize our bodies, don't we? We do. And look, did that? I mean, we we went against the chocolate, no chocolate egg advice, but yeah, he did say that's probably not the best uh, sort of nutrition for you, but for weaponizing, for weaponizing. Your body. <laughs> I guess if you want to eggify your body. Yeah, you've done it. Um, but look, we were really privileged to have access to to Jeremy. And he was very generous with his time. Uh, if you are at all interested in how high performance works um, or you're interested in your own exercise and nutrition, this is the episode for you. Uh, Here it is, part A of Jeremy Battle. Hope you enjoy. Blake, do you like stories of people doing? I love stories of people doing, Nick. Well, if you out there like stories of people doing and you want us to make more stories of people doing, then like this podcast, subscribe and tell your mates because the more people we have listening the more episodes we can make, and that's better for everyone out there who's doing or wants to do. And as Arnold would say, do it. I thought he said I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy Better, welcome to the Doolanders. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. How are you doing? We are fantastic. How are you, Nick? Good, thanks, Blake. Good to be here. How many international guests have we had on the Doolanders before? Excluding me. You are not international. Oh, this is number one. This is number one. Jeremy Battle, you are number our first international guest. Where are you talking to us from? Well, it's uh, my huge honour to be uh, talking to you guys from Laguna Beach in California. Oh. Gee, that sounds good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> What a place to be. How, tell us a little bit about Laguna Beach. Well, it's um, a little town in uh, Orange County, a little surfing community. Um, there's about uh, a mile between the ocean and the, and the mountains. And uh, you've got a bunch of people sort of nestled in that little, little space. So, yeah, it's beautiful. So why, why does everyone not live there? Uh, it's a select few. <laughs> is it, you have to apply to it. Well, it, 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 to, uh, look, I think my only reference to Orange is the Housewives of 
um, Orange County. And it's a, yeah, is it a exactly gated... exactly like that. It's, <laughs> yeah. Every day. Yeah, every, exactly. Is it a gated community? Yeah. Do you live in a gated community? Uh, you want the honest answer? Yeah, I want the <laughs> honest answer. Maybe, yeah, but maybe we used to. Uh, uh, no, we, we don't anymore. Right. Uh, right. No, we, we moved now. We're... Uh, we're decently close to the beach, a little uh, little spot down here. So yeah, it's nice. Sounds like it. You don't sound like you grew up there. No, I didn't. I was originally uh, from Texas. <laughs> that is not a Texas accent. <laughs> no, from uh, from Leicester in England. So yeah. so fair change. That is a fair change. So Jeremy, we love to uh, ask our guests on the Doolanders. What do you do and how did an Englishman born in Leicester find his way to the States? So I am um, director of high performance for a, a national hockey league team over here, uh, the Anaheim Ducks. The, the, is that the Mighty Ducks? It is the Mighty Ducks. You you might have seen the documentary about our founding with uh, Emilio Estevez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, that is a what a brilliant documentary that is. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, really, really inspirational story. So yeah, 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 yeah. We might watch that tonight again. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'll just give you a bit of context for what I do. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what does the director of high performance at the Anaheim, the Mighty Ducks, actually? Do? What does that mean? Um, so essentially it's overseeing everything that impacts the athletes off the ice. You know, we look at, uh, everything from the rehab, uh, the, the fitness, the nutrition, um, just generally getting them prepared for the, the hockey season, which is 82 games. 82. Um, wow. How many games, yeah. a, how many games a week? So three to four, um, this season we've been trimmed down to 50 odd games. Um, but we're compacted to, you know, we, we could be four, we played six games in eight days uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, it's a, a pretty intense schedule. You've got to be really good at what you're doing, I'd imagine, because I've, look, my, other than the, the documentary on the Mighty Ducks, my, I haven't seen a lot of uh, ice hockey over the journey, albeit to say the, the snippets that I've seen are generally big, massive guys traveling at a million squilly miles an hour, smashing really hard into each other. So I'd imagine your job to keep those guys on the, on the ice day in, day out, week in, week out is tough. Yeah, it's, um, it can be complicated. You know, it's uh, all different uh, shapes and sizes. You, you're right, that's, that's the actual speed we travel at on the ice. So, um, yeah, it's... <laughs> It's it's big collisions. They're still fighting in the game, you know. So you've got your fighters coming out, and um, yeah, you're, you're traveling as well between cities between games. You know, you might like next week we play a game in St. Louis, and then we fly to Denver and play the next day. You know, so all of that you've got to take into account. So all the recovery, all the treatments. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a lot to keep them all in in good nick. So are you supervising and overseeing all aspects of that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wow. And how big's the team yeah. that you manage to make sure so that, that happens? Our, yeah, our team, um, we've got sort of five medical guys, uh, two strength coaches, myself handling more of the sports science side. We've got nutrition. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a decent group. Mm. And then on the other side, we've got coaches and, and management as well, so... Yeah, we've got, uh, got a good number of people. When you, when you, and we'll get into this in a bit more detail a little later on, but when you think about the science side of things, h- how much of it has become, has become about the science um, when you think about you know, what you're trying to achieve these days? Yeah, a, a lot more science is coming into sport across the board. Um, almost to a fault in, in some instances where we're putting the cart bef- before the horse a little bit, you know, where we, we can forget that these guys are paid to play hockey and we start thinking we're very important as sports scientists and strength coaches. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're there in service and support of the coach 
and how he wants to play the game, you know, and to make sure the athletes are prepared and resilient enough to, to execute that game plan for him. So it, it can go incredibly detailed. Um, I think my key role is simplifying it somewhat uh, for both the athlete and the coach so that they can understand what we're doing and, um, and buy into some of the processes we're, we're asking of them. Yeah, nice one. Okay, well, let, let's get into that in a bit more detail. So you're an Englishman, <clears throat> born in Leicester. You're living in Orange County. You used to live in a gated community. You're travelling around. <laughs> you're travelling around with uh, and working in elite sport in America. And when there were crowds, massive crowds on a you know day to day basis. Actually, before we get into your journey, how's life? How's life with uh, COVID nineteen where you're living at the moment? Yeah. Um it's it's not a simple answer. I think, you know, when I look at the whole context of how I'm doing in this pandemic, my experience of this has been so vastly different than 99% of the world. You know, I, I still got a paycheck coming in. I live in a beautiful place. We, we didn't have to contend with, with a lockdown in the middle of a, a Canadian winter, um, you know, where you can't go outside. So, We've been super fortunate and, and I'm very grateful for that and very mindful of the fact that other people's experience has been very markedly different to mine. Um, you know, all we've had to deal with is it gets a bit monotonous. Yeah. You know, you'd, you'd love to be able to go and explore and see the restaurants and, and get out. Um, you know, everybody sort of gets into a bit of a funk when they're confined to quarters a little bit. But yeah, it, it's been okay. You know, and we've had the outlet with the athletes. You know, I've been able to get to work and we operate under very strict protocols at work. So, you know, we, we try and stay safe in that regard. But, yeah, it's overall it's been not as inconvenient for me as it's been, you know, tragic for other people. Yeah, yeah, millions <laughs> of others. Great perspective. Okay, so when you were a young lad, running around the streets of um, Leicester, did you have one of those hockey sticks in your hand or what was uh, what sort of sport were you into as a kid? Yeah, no, not much ice hockey in Leicester. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is it, do they play ice hockey at all in England? Yeah, the, there, is, um, there is a league. Um, I never saw it, but uh, apparently they, they do play it. There's yeah. Teams dotted all over the place. Um, right. It's funny, I actually meet a lot of people within the league now who are coaching who didn't quite make the grade to go to the NHL and so played all over the UK, up in Scotland and um, yeah, all, all over England. So it's, it's quite interesting to hear their stories, um, uh, given that I didn't even know that was going on as a, as a thing. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah completely so what oblivious. Were you, what were you into? So I was a rugby player growing up. Yeah, I wasn't a, a very good uh, cricket or football player. Um, I was pretty good at running into things. So <laughs> rugby was uh, was a good option for me. When you say so, like it's a brutal sport though, rugby, isn't it? Mm. And is, mm-hmm. it a, is rugby a game for big blokes, you know, big men? Yeah. Yeah, especially now. You know, I played just as the, we were transitioning from the amateur era into fully professional. Um, and guys were, were big and strong and fit. But then with the advent of professionalism and over the years now, guys like me have got involved and just completely weaponized the human body. And so the, the collisions now, like you don't even recognize top professional players as, as rugby players like they, they used to be. Yeah. It, it's frightening how, uh, how big they are now. Just on that weaponizing the human body thing, at the end of this, can you give Nick and I some tips <laughs> on how to weaponize <laughs> our bodies? Oh, we'll transform you, yeah, over the next hour, don't worry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, great. All right, well, we've got a couple of kettlebells in the background. You just give us some instructions oh, yeah. and away we go. walk through doorways That's sideways fine. and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like a yeah, big yeah, hour. Yeah. How was your childhood, mate? It, was it... Uh, a ball of laughs. Did you have a great time? What was it like growing up in England? 
And what what did your folks do? Yeah, it was it was great. Um, my my mum's a speech therapist. Um, so mum and dad separated when I was uh, I was quite young, probably about five. Uh, dad moved over to the states uh, when I was nine, um, and so mum and, and my stepdad uh, raised me. Uh, he worked. My stepdad worked in the uh, in the water industry. Um, yeah, and you know we we didn't have a ton of money, uh, but we never went without anything. You know, they, they worked extra and they, they sacrificed for us to be able to have all the experiences we needed to have. And, you know, we, we played rugby. I was in the army cadets, you know, for a number of years and did, did everything that, that I could have wanted to do, had all sorts of experiences that um, really helped me grow up. Yeah. Nice one. You briefly touched on your stepfather. We spoke earlier and you were saying uh, you, you were very fortunate that, that man wandered into your life uh, as a young kid. Yeah, yeah, hugely um, influential in my life. Um, you know, he's uh, just a, an example of how you treat people. Um, you know, as a, a pretty young man himself took on, you know, mum and four kids. And, you know, he, he um, was just always there for us, always, you know, supporting us. We, we were his kids. We weren't his stepkids. Um, yeah, just, just a wonderful human being and, and a real, as I said, just an example for me of, of how to treat people, how to, you know, be in a relationship with your wife, you know, and just, um, yeah, can't speak highly enough of him and how fortunate we were to have him. Yeah. Fantastic. So as a, as you were growing older and you were playing rugby and, uh, you know, playing a, a, against a bunch of weapons was it clear was it clear in your mind what you wanted to do uh, from a career perspective um yeah the initial goal of course is any young kid playing you want to be a professional once that starts to become a a job you know as it's sort of transitioned to being but as you alluded to you know you're playing against big guys and once you start climbing the ladder you start getting into a game of physics where the guy running at you can do everything you can do, but he's six, four and weighs about a hundred pounds more than you. So, you know, momentum and, and all the rest of it. And you start losing those battles. So it became pretty clear that I was going to have to pick another vocation. Um, but from very early on, I, I just knew I wanted to be involved in sport. Right. You know, I was fit. I was athletic. I, I enjoyed it. So, you know, started with my GCSE, studying PE and anatomy and physiology and all that sort of stuff. And then went on to do my undergrad, um, studying sports science. But there weren't really yet those key roles to sort of look up to. You know, there there weren't tons of strength coaches all over the place, you know. You know, there weren't really those role models yet where you didn't know what you were going to be in sport, but you know, there, there were some specialties like biomechanists and, you know, exercise physiologists, but it was all very lab based and, you know, not much actually with the team. And you'd started to see some fitness coaches coming into sport. Um, and so that, that was starting to be a thing and, and sort of be appealing. So I started gravitating towards that. Yeah. Okay. You found yourself uh, at a point in time working in a gym, uh, as mm-hmm. a, as a you know, personal trainer and a, and an instructor, and um, I think you said to yourself, "There's got to be more than than this." Uh, yeah. What happened around that time? Because you you ended up finding your way to the states, right? Yeah, that's right. So I graduated in 2002 from Leeds and moved back home, and you know I'd done some internships during my degree at David Lloyd's in Leicester, and uh, yeah, it's a nice club, nice gym. You know, if you're going to work in a, in a gym, it's a, a good place to be. But, God, it was um, mind-numbingly boring, you know, especially when, <laughs> yeah. when you're a young, recent grad, you know, back when you know everything there is to know. Yeah. And you just think you're a genius, right? So you think, God, there's got to be more to it than this, All right? So yeah, do, started, do you, you, basically your conversations on a day-to-day basis were, here's a program I've mapped out, follow it. Yeah. Yeah, ten that, flies. That's about the extent of it. Yeah, ten lat pull downs. Yeah, yeah ten yeah. bicep curls. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. And then a month later, oh, you didn't do your program. And you want to know why you're not getting in shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That, the story that everybody's followed. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. That, that was my life for a, a year there. So, yeah. yeah so I was talking with, with my dad over here in the, in the States and he suggested, well, why don't you come over here and do a master's, you know, and just continue your education in that field. Uh, he was living just outside Nashville at the time uh, in Tennessee. And there was a, a local college near him, uh, Middle Tennessee State, and they had a master's program in human performance. Um, so, yeah, I decided that's what I was going to do and quit my job. Two weeks later, uh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> wow. you, you've landed in this. So like, for a young fella from you know, last of where you grew up to land in Nashville, right? the Bible Belt, of the states what was it culturally what was it like and was it was it difficult for you how did you transition make that yeah it was um it was interesting because you go right from from leicester and you land in the bible belt so you know it's a, a southern conservative state um we weren't very uh conservative or religious in leicester um so yeah that that side of it took some adjusting to but you know, it was um, one of those situations where as a a young English guy, you've got this funny English accent. And so you're a bit of a novelty. And so people sort of accept you into their community a little quicker. Um, and my dad had been living there a while. And, and so I'd met his friends on previous visits. And so, yeah, it was it wasn't too bad a transition, to be honest. You know, the, the toughest thing was going through and getting the visas and stuff like that to get into school. Um yeah, but otherwise, no, it was, it was a good transition, um, mainly with the difficulties with people understanding my accent. <laughs> <laughs> it is very thick. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, was, it was a lot thicker. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what it was like when you landed and you walked into the, into the college and saw the weights room and thought, wow, this is a little different from where I've been. Yeah, that was, um, that was really eye-opening. You know, the, as I said, the... The, the Leicester Tigers, who were the dominant rugby team in, in England at the time, they would train at David Lloyd's in Leicester. You know, so they're in a public gym um, next to the regular folks and they're, they're doing their lifts in the gym. So it wasn't like there were big facilities that I'd seen. And then you go into this college and Middle Tennessee, it's a big college, but it's not a major sports university. Right. But you walk in and they've got this, first of all, they've got a 30,000 seater stadium for their, their American football team. Um, and they've got a, like a 20,000 square foot weight room, you know, and you've got wow. racks as far as the eye can see. You've got all these, these plates and the Olympic lifting and these monster, uh, football players that just lift in a house. And, and that's, just, and that's not a sports college. No, no, it's a, it's a pretty minor sports college. No, when you look at the big colleges, you look at, um, university of Oregon, you look at university of Texas, university of Tennessee, like or uh, Ohio State, they'll get 110,000 at their games every week. Isn't so that it's, amazing? Um, that is amazing. It's incredible. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah to, to a college sport, they're not even professional. So, yeah, it's uh, it's staggering. So that was that was a really eye-opening moment where you, you start seeing a different side of, of what you could potentially do with athletes. You know, and that, their strength staff were super open and welcoming to me to just come in and ask questions and, and observe for uh, for a little bit and just see what they were doing. It was also pretty fortuitous that you you landed in Nashville because you and when you arrived, it was pretty soon after that you marry your wife, but you met Michelle, and and that was a pretty uh-huh. interesting way that you met. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, it was approximately eight hours after landing. Right. Yeah, so it was it was really quick. Um, yeah, we uh, my dad had, had bought a, a place and um, it was on a, a larger property. There were a couple of other houses, and it turns out that that was the house that Michelle grew up in. And her uh, her parents had sold it to my dad, and she still had a place on the property that she was in the process of selling. So. I had no sooner landed and, you know, we got to the house that 
um, we were going to be dog sitting for Michelle's dogs. So she knocks on the door and um, you know, this beautiful Southern girl knocking on the door and you know, dog as well. So that was a bonus. And uh, yes, that's how we met. <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah, yeah, it is. Exactly. So within, within eight hours of landing in the States, you've looked your future wife in the eye. That is unbelievable. Yeah, amazing, huh? Yeah, yeah. Hey, so you've landed in the States. <laughs> where where did the next couple of years take you? So, as I said, it was a bit of a journey getting the, the visa for school, but uh, basically going through my master's, um, and I was on schedule to get my master's done within a year. Um, and then probably two-thirds of the way through, they invited me to do my PhD. Um, I was doing quite well in school, which um, was a surprise to everyone. <laughs> and uh, was it, <laughs> hang, on, hang on, was it a surprise to you? Yeah. Um, you know, I've always been pretty intelligent, but I, I was not a model student um, in my undergrad. You know, we, we very much enjoyed Leeds right. um, <laughs> and the university. Yeah. And uh, when you remove all distractions, because I didn't know anyone, right? So I moved to this new place. Um, I, you know, started reading the textbooks, you know, all this sort of stuff. Good it's start. Yep. quite novel, <laughs> it was for me, you know. And so, um, yeah, and, and it was like, wow, this is quite easy when you do all this stuff. <laughs> when you read the textbooks, yeah, it does help, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, you study and, you know, read books and, yeah, it was uh, it was miraculous. So, yeah, it was um, went really well and they, like I said, they invited me back to do my PhD. Um, Michelle and I had uh, started dating at the time and, you know, she was uh, not exactly thrilled to hear that we were going to be uh, going through another four years of me being a student and not working and... Um, but you know, she was she was always there for me and supported me through it. So, yeah, that's uh, that was the next couple of years before eventually you start thinking about well, I, I don't necessarily want to be a teacher, you know, and that's sort of the the path as a when you get your PhD, you go um, get your masters, get your PhD, start teaching, and I just thought, well, I've not done anything yet, you know, I, how do I know this stuff that that's in all these research papers and all these books I'm reading, how do I know it works? And wouldn't it be much more interesting if I returned as a teacher after 20 years of working with professional athletes where I could turn around and have some stories and actually show how this works and demonstrate that it, it has worked in, in the applied setting. So it presented a bit of a challenge in that, you know, how far do you go into your PhD? Do you graduate and then try and get a job as an assistant strength coach? Because no one wants a head strength coach with no experience. Yeah. But it was going to be hard to get a job as an assistant with a PhD. So I figured I started. I needed to start building my experience during that process. Um, and that's where I was some great timing. But um, there'd been a transition at USA Rugby where they had new leadership come in. So, Jeremy, what was it that you said to USA Rugby that they thought, hey, we're going to have this man on the team? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I presented to them on the research that I wanted to do. And again, bearing in mind that it was very early in professionalism, well, relatively, you know, 10 years after the game had turned professional. And in the US, it was a much smaller sport. Um, and so what I was wanting to look at was really study the international players and find out what exactly were the demands of the sport at every position and how could we translate that into the physical preparation of the athletes. Um, now they, they'd had, um, a group come over from New Zealand, uh, a couple of South Africans, a couple of English people. Um, and so that was appealing to them because they, they'd already been through that process of professionalization, uh, in the major rugby nations. And so, um, what I think was the clincher was that I'd likely be willing to work for very little money. <laughs> and so that, uh, that was of great interest to them. You said you'd do it for basically zero yeah exactly exactly and how was that experience so you know you played rugby as a kid you'd been involved and you walk into usa rugby and you're off to the world cup right 
Yeah, it was amazing. You know, when these are the things that you dream of, yeah. you know, being involved in some capacity, you know, in a World Cup. And, you know, it was really funny, actually. I, I was quite nervous, obviously, the first time I went to their headquarters. And, you know, I'm just this random guy going to the this, you know, big sports team and I'm just going to be blown away. And, and I walk in, I'm going to be the video guy. And I've never done this stuff before, um, but I figure I can, I can learn it pretty quick. And uh, they were actually taking me up and they were going to show me how they were currently capturing games. And we go into the conference room and they've got a laptop with a projector with the game projected up onto the wall and a video camera sat on a stool <laughs> and filming the game off the wall. Right. And, yeah, it was at that moment I knew I was going to be okay. You're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like slide night. It, like, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, okay, yeah, I can probably do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was a good introduction. Um, but, mate, going to the World Cup, and, and we did, like, the Churchill Cup, which was USA, um, England's A-team, and, you know, so we got to play at Twickenham, you know, and, and I got to... to be the game as a, a member of the support staff at Twickenham, which was just mind blowing, you know. And we got to, you know, meet the England support staff and, and make some great contacts there. And um, it was three weeks back home, so my family got to come and see some of the games and stuff. So yeah, that was really cool. Um, and then we go over to France, and you know, we played against England, we played against South Africa. Uh, we actually scored the try of the tournament against South Africa that year. Um, which was absolutely unreal. Like, what a great feeling! And did that have um, a lot to did that have a lot to do with your video analysis? <laughs> it was critical. Yeah, it was, really was. Yeah, yeah. It, it really helped to uh, develop the speed of the guy who just like gassed Brian Habana and <laughs> scored the try on a ninety meter run. Yeah, of course it did. I like it. Yeah, yeah. It was critical. So after after this amazing experience. For a young kid, you've, you know, you're off to World Cup and Twickenham. You then it led you, you finished up there and you, you went and worked in a physio clinic. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a, another interesting step. Like going through that, um, the strength coach for USA Rugby was uh, David Williams, a great guy um, and a, an early mentor in, in my career. Um, so he had let me help him in the in the weight room, you know, as, as sort of a volunteer assistant, as it were. And I quickly realized that in a contact sport, all your guys, especially your veterans, are going to be injured to some degree uh, so that you're going to have to change up your program for them. You know, so you design this great workout and the guys come in and four of them have got bad shoulders. One's got a bad back you know, one's got a bad knee, they can still play and you still got to prepare them. But how do you accomplish your goals when those guys, you know, can't actually do the lift? And I, I realized very quickly that I didn't have any experience in that. You know, I didn't really know how do we modify what's safe, what's not. Um, and so Maury Hayashida was the uh, physio for USA Rugby at the time as well. And he had said, well, your contract's ending. Why don't you come out to Santa Barbara? Um, which is also in California, just a little further up the coast, um, and, and work, you know, in my clinic with me. And so, you know, again, it was one of those really quick turnaround things where I think it was about two or three weeks later, I was actually in Santa Barbara working, um, and Michelle and I moved out there. And mate, it was uh, just fantastic experience, you know, working with, with Maury, you know, a major influence on, on my career as well. Um, we started really dissecting those rehab protocols where we could start them training as early as possible, you know, sometimes the week after surgery, um, and just figuring out, okay, well, we know what he can't do, but we haven't spent a lot of time looking at what he can do. Yeah. So he's had shoulder surgery. Maybe we can find a way to rig up and have him do squats. Um, can he still work the other side? Can he, um, can he do some conditioning in some capacity? And so we, every day we would talk about these athletes. So, okay, he did this yesterday. There was no pain. He made some progress. Can we do a little more today in this area? And 
we go, okay, well, let's try it. And, and so we did that and developed these, these unreal sort of transitional rehab programs where it was beyond your normal physiotherapy. It was really getting into the detail of, of when you return to play, we want you to be cleared to play, physically prepared for the demands, ready to go. Not you're cleared to play. Okay, now let's get you fit and, and hopefully you'll be okay. And that set you up perfectly for your next opportunity, <laughs> didn't it? Because you've you've learned yeah. about, you've learned to create all of these individualized programs. Talk to us about you know UC Santa Barbara and and what met you when you walked into that. Yeah, amazing. Again, like I've been very fortunate throughout my career. Um, whenever I've been open to a new opportunity or been ready for it once presented, you know, and, and it's, um, it's been a lot of good luck in that regard. So UC Santa Barbara, they're a division one, a smaller division one, uh, college. Um, and as I was sort of, I felt I'd got everything I could out of working with Maury and I was ready to get back into strength conditioning. The role of, of their head strength, strength coach came up and, um, uh, through another connection I'd made in Santa Barbara. Um, he was very well connected within the, the university. And, and so he put my name forward and I was very fortunate to interview and, and get the job as a, as a relative outsider. You know, I hadn't been in the college sports system, so I was a pretty unorthodox hire. Um, again, an English guy coming out of rugby, you know, going into a, a college where, you know, basketball was the major sport. They were elite baseball uh, sport, um, uh, you know, all of, all these sports that I hadn't necessarily been familiar with. Um, and so I was, re- you know, really fortunate to be brought in. So, in fact, you know, there was 500 athletes that you're looking yeah. after, 11 different yeah. sports. And you, you're, why are you? <laughs> no, seriously, you were, 20, <laughs> you were 25 years old, right? You were 25 yeah, years old. Yeah, right around why, that. Yeah. Why did they put their trust in what you had to offer? Um, I think it's... Because you weren't doing it for free this time. <laughs> no, no. Um, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my most lucrative role, but it, was, it wasn't free. Um, I think what they liked was how I thought about preparing the athletes you know i i wasn't gonna come in which is very common in in those settings where you've got 500 athletes and two maybe three strength coaches where you've got a program and it's clean squat bench and then a couple of accessory lifts and everyone gets out and it's the same if you women's water polo if you're american football if you're basketball yeah and the way i thought about things not only on a sport but all the way down to an individual level on how we can look at each athlete and build a program that's going to make them more resilient and better prepared for their sport you know it was something that stood out to them as being a little bit different than than your typical college strength coach um you know having having worked through you know most of my phd at the time um you know and and brought a bit of an academic background to the college as well. You know, I think that that was appealing to him. Yeah. You also got exposure to uh, a gentleman by the name of Marcus Elliott and mm-hmm. probably the, the premier, one of the world's premier sports science labs in P3. Tell us a bit about uh, that organisation, Marcus, and, and what you did there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, Sam. Anna Barbara, you know, the, probably two of the most influential people in my career in Maury and then and then in Marcus. Um, so P3 is a sports science facility and they, they were years ahead of their time, you know, um, applying advanced uh, biomechanical principles, uh, 3D motion capture with 12 camera systems um, and really super detailed individual breakdown of an athlete. Um and applying layers of deep uh, understanding of injury risk with those biomechanical factors. So making sure that they got a, a movement blueprint or a fingerprint of each guy and then designing a program 
to correct any issues they might have, which was right in line with the work I was doing with, with Maury, but just in so much more detail. Right. So that became a really good opportunity for me to, again, unplug from the 500 athletes, you, you know, you've got groups of 30 every half an hour for 16 hours. Um, and then you've got, you come out and you've got 10 athletes, you've got 10 coaches, you've got one guy that you've got a complete breakdown of, and you've got this, this network of people around them from physical therapists to strength coaches, you know, and, and everything that they could possibly need. And you got to really dial into one athlete. So just complete opposite ends of the spectrum. But what it also allowed me to do was go back into P3, into, sorry, UCSB with my knowledge from Maury of the rehab stuff, my knowledge from Marcus of the individual breakdown and start applying that to, to big groups of athletes, you know, and over, over the years, be able to almost 500 athletes, 500 programs. You know, everybody had a little note on their program. Everybody had a, um, a little variation, you know, on the, the main program that we'd written for them. Um, so just hugely, hugely influential period in my career and, and development, you know, in that mid career sort of point where you, you're starting to really hone your technical skills. Yeah. Um, you know, just massive exposure to, to training hours because you've got so many different kinds of sports, you're just seeing everything there is to see, you know, every possible injury, every possible, um, you know, performance challenge from a, a water polo player who is basically never going to touch the ground to a basketball player who's got a 40 inch vertical jump. Um, and how, how do you find those similarities and, and how can one principle, you know, if somebody's got, uh, maybe a, a hip thing as a, a water polo player, does that translate over to helping the basketball guys hips, you know? And so we, we got to really look at that diversity of athletes as a, a huge advantage for us. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Like your own little lab. It absolutely was. And, and again, because they were sort of under-resourced, we were really free to, to try all these different things with them. Super hungry for, for input. You know, these athletes were, they hadn't made it yet, so they were incredibly motivated and they were willing to, to do and try anything. Um, yeah, so it was absolutely terrific experience. And was it through P3 that you got to work with Darren Williams, who was playing for the Brooklyn Nets at the time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, he was actually in Utah at the time. Right. Um, and so he's, he was one of the top point guards uh, in the NBA at the time. Mm. And... Um, he came in to start working with them and Marcus had invited me down to work with some of their NBA guys in the past. And so I ended up taking the lead with Darren and, um, yeah, developed a really good relationship with him. I could go down to San Diego where he was living to, to train him. He'd come up to Santa Barbara. Um, and then we'd work on, uh, fitness and nutrition plans for him for the, for the in season stuff when he wasn't with us. So yeah, we, um, we got to know each other quite well, uh, at that point. And, and it was all, like, say, through P3. Um, yeah, just really good exposure to, to really top-level pros, really elite athletes. And through that connection, an opportunity to, to, join, to join the Brooklyn Nets <coughs> came up. Like, talk to us about that. Yeah, it was it's funny. You know, in, in working with all these NBA guys, I'd really – and working, you know, with the men's basketball, women's basketball at, at UCSB, I'd really fallen in love with the sport. You know, it wasn't something I'd, I'd grown up with. But the, the athleticism of these absolute giants was just um, amazing to me. And so I'd set myself a goal where I, I wanted to be an NBA strength coach. Um, and, you know, you, you put that out into the universe and people sort of chuckle, you know, at the we talked about being a five nine English guy wanting to work in the NBA where there's 30 jobs, you know, and there are a lot of people way more qualified for it. Well, more obvious for the job than I was. Mm. Um, and so Darren was in Utah. He then got traded to, uh, to the Nets and they were still in New Jersey at the time. Um, and he 
actually that off season when he got traded, he had their GM bring the whole team out to Santa Barbara to train at P3. And so, you know, I got to meet their staff and, you know, work with Darren and then met his teammates and we got some of the, the top guys out there. It was, that was really fun. Um, and so through keeping in touch with Darren as that went on, um, there were, there was a big lockout, you know, the, the season was suspended and, in that time, the the GM was looking to bring in a new strength coach for them. And with Darren being the superstar that they wanted to sign as they made a transition from New Jersey to Brooklyn and make that big marquee signing, um, they asked his advice on, you know, do you know anyone um, that, that we could hire for this role? And he just said, well, yeah, why don't you hire Jeremy? Um, and so it was entirely look that I happen to be okay at what I what I did because they would have hired me either way I think <laughs> so it was just fortunate that I was actually okay at it <laughs> so that must have been an amazing feeling to you know get the call to say okay you are now part of the NBA you are now working for the Brooklyn Nets like did that sink in like did you think wow this is crazy i'm you know young kid born in england or or was it just part of the journey yeah i um i have a real issue celebrating stuff uh, especially my own accomplishments really so it was just sort of a part of a part of the the journey now i'll tell you what i was absolutely terrified yeah absolutely terrified um just like, what have I done? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to keep up, you know, just massive imposter syndrome. I just, uh, and uh, yeah, it was a quick turnaround. I, I got the call on the Monday and I was there working on the Thursday. Um, oh, wow. It's a pretty big move uh, to make that quickly. Um, so but their you- season was starting up, so I had to go. What did Michelle think? Well, she couldn't wait to move from Santa Barbara to New Jersey in January. <laughs> she was thrilled about that. It was <laughs> about a sixty-degree swing in weather. You know, <laughs> um, it, it was it was absolutely brutal for her because I got up and moved and went right to work and had a group of friends and colleagues and all the rest of it. And she stayed in Santa Barbara and packed up our tiny little apartment uh, with our three big dogs and drove across the the states. Actually, as she was driving across from one coast to the other, um, she celebrated her birthday. And her birthday dinner was like a cold, soggy, like, I don't know, fast food, like Captain D's, like fish, something that was, uh, yeah, just awful. So, yeah, I'm still paying for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet you are. So you – good on her – you arrive, you've been, you know, coaching 500 athletes. Now you've got 18. You've got a healthy mm-hmm. dose of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to work. What, what was going through your mind? And yeah, how, how do you get elite athletes that are six foot, eight, nine, ten, seven foot to do what you want them to do? Mm-hmm. Because I would imagine they're not a bunch of yes men that are going to say, okay, whatever you say. 100% right. Um, I think a couple of things. It, it helped being Darren's guy in that environment. You know, if Darren's the, the leader of the team and, you know, he's doing what, what you say, then there's an inherent amount of trust that sort of comes with that. Um but I didn't want to go in there as Darren's guy. Yeah. You know, it was really important to me that I was the net strength coach and I was there for all of them. I wasn't, you know, going to be at, at Darren's beck and call. Um, it, it's funny, you walk in and, and I think the first thing is starting to build relationships with people and um, while you might not be feeling it, exuding some confidence. Um, 
you know, being able to, to present what you're doing and why you want them to do it, how it's going to help them. Um, having the support of the coach, the general manager, you know, it, it, all of that, it's, it's so multifactorial with those athletes. Um, that was, was really helpful, just being able to connect with them a little bit uh, on a personal level and, and have conversations rather than come in and, you know, here's what we're doing and there's no compromise. Most of what you do around that, that team is negotiate. You know, like we, we got squats today. Well, I'm not doing squats. Okay. <laughs> That's a good starting place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's just yeah. do something different, what, right? What, yeah. What would you like to do then? <laughs> uh, and, and usually it would either be, no, nah, I can do it. Or it would be, well, could I do a single leg squat? Or could I do this? And, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. We can do that. Yeah. You know, when you start compromising. And then with some of the guys, they just want to know that you can do it. You know, right. like one of the, the guys, he was a veteran. He was a little bit standoffish. He was very fit, you know, in great shape. Um, and, you know, I was, I was chirping him about his program. You know, maybe it was about his pull-ups or something. And, and I actually beat him in a pull-up uh, competition. And from that moment on, he did my program every day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How many pull-ups did you do? Oh, I don't know now. I don't know. We would have been in the 20s. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't crazy, but yeah. That's crazy. It was enough to beat. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> so what, do you, what sort of bodies are you trying to build for NBA basketballers? Because outside of looking in, right, they need to be super strong. They need to be... Mm-hmm super powerful and quick they need to have endurance um that like what are you trying to build yeah it's it's really interesting because if you ask a basketball player what what do you want out of the program like i want to be able to jump higher you know everyone wants to work on what they're already good at yeah yeah you're six nine and you've got a 40 inch vertical i don't think that's where we need to start yeah yeah um, a lot of the, the basketball development mindset has to be around strength because these guys, they, they're unbelievably hard workers. You know, these guys will be putting up between 500 and 1,000 shots a day, you know, out on the court. Yeah. They'll, be, they'll be doing so much on court. And they've got where they are through being seven feet tall and having a seven, four wingspan. Yeah. Like that makes you a basketball player. Like I could work on my jump shot all day and I'm not going to play in the NBA. Um, I, I can't jump high enough. That's why. Yeah. 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 <laughs> How many five foot nine um, dudes are running around in the NBA? You know, not, not many, yeah. you know, we're a select group, <laughs> lots of strength coaches. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The yeah. ideal height for a strength we, coach. Yeah, there's nothing we hate more as a group than a tall strength coach. <laughs> you know, when they come into the room, yeah, yeah there's a, a couple of um, a couple of strength coaches um, who were, you know, they were six four, six five, six six, and they were absolutely shunned from the group. You know, we just didn't want them around us. <laughs> so you shouldn't lock them out. No longer of, uh, yeah, allowed in the exactly. in the community. That was the end of part A of this interview. Part B begins right now.